Hi everyone, it's good to be with you guys, um, and I'm really excited to share tonight. Um, we were going to have some guests come from Zimbabwe, and, and um, it kind of worked out alright because I shared this message this morning, so it, it kind of works to share it again tonight. And we're talking about hope, and it's interesting because they, they were going to talk about hope as well, kind of in the context of Zimbabwe and, and some of the challenges they're facing. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to them being able to come um, next year and, and share. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to share this message. It's just been, um, I don't know, you have different times when God's just sort of speaking something like, yeah, this is the message to share. And there's other times when it's like, actually, I'm really excited to share that. Like, like this has kind of done something in my heart and I really want to tell people about it. And that's kind of where I'm at tonight, which is, is, is exciting to be able to come and, and share that with you guys. And um, yeah, so we're sort of tracking on this theme of hope. And maybe just to start with and kind of frame it, I just want you to sort of imagine and just think and maybe reflect on a time in your life when you felt very hopeful, you felt full of hope. You, I guess, were looking towards the future, you're anticipating. Um, and what was that like? What did it, what did it feel like? Um, why did you feel like that? And what, what did you do? How did you act? When, you, when you're full of hope, what, what, sort of, what sort of posture towards life were you taking? What, what sort of decisions were you making? And maybe think of another time, what about when maybe you've even felt like that, you've been sort of looking forward, there's been hope, there's been anticipation, and then there's disappointment, or there's just, everything goes bad, it, it all falls apart, and, and it, there's just sort of a sense of there being no hope. And how do you sort of act then? Like, what's sort of your posture and approach to life in that situation? What sort of decisions do you make? Kind of whether we are full of hope or not is, is really um, significant. Well, can you just click on, I think I haven't got this clicked on, yeah. Um, and often we kind of are pretty good sometimes of having hope when things are looking good. We sort of think, okay, well, I can see these things coming together. I can sort of predict the future a bit. Things are sort of looking up. So we kind of feel hopeful and then we kind of act in accordance with that. But then if there's other situations where actually everything just goes bad, it all falls apart, you can't see anything good, you can't see any way out, and often we kind of feel like, oh, okay, there's no hope, and maybe even go further and become cynical or, or sceptical, or kind of just check out, or maybe even give up. And it's interesting, because we use hope in that way often. We kind of use the word hope as in we can see things getting better, or actually there's no chance they'll get better. But biblically, the word hope is actually really, really different. The, the, the way the Bible uses the word hope is not that we wish things will get better or we can kind of see things getting better. It's that we actually have confidence they will get better, especially when there's no evidence at all that they'll get better. It's actually not based at all on what we see happening or just sort of piecing things together or feeling hopeful. It's actually all based on what God has said. And it actually finds its strength particularly when everything falls apart. So I want to tell you a story today, which is kind of a random story. It's, it's in the book of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 32. Um, and it's a story about hope. But it's a sort of a story that you kind of just read and you kind of think, oh, well, that, that's kind of strange. But when you sort of actually get what's going on, it's crazy. It's, it's incredibly powerful. So I want to just tell you this story and then, then kind of unpack this as this picture. Well, what does it look like to be people filled with hope, particularly in situations that seem hopeless? There's no reason to think things are going to get better, but we actually still act as if we believe they will. What does that look like? So there's this story in Jeremiah. 
Um, I might just pray and then, then we'll look at this, this passage. So Father, we just thank you for your word. Um, yeah, just being able to read the stories from people thousands of years ago who followed you and, and recorded and trusted your word and how you speak even still today. And we just ask today, God, for your spirit to speak into hearts, shift our um, postures and hearts and give us hope, Lord. And we just pray your protection and, and just your, yeah, your kingdom over this space tonight in your name. Amen. Okay, so this story starts with a devastating setting. It's, things are not good for Jeremiah or for Israel. Um, the very, very quick sort of recap of the story of, of the Old Testament is God wants to renew the world. He wants to rescue the world. He does it through a family, through the Israelites. He rescues them out of Egypt, and they're meant to be his people who he, he loves and cares for. And he almost basically has this, it's almost like a marriage. He has a covenant with them. And it's this agreement, and he puts them in this land, and there's kings. And the agreement is if they follow him, they listen to him, they reflect his goodness, he'll bless them. But if they forsake him, he, he will curse them, because they're going to follow other gods, and they do evil things. And it's, God says, I'm not going to allow that. And the story goes that there's some kings, and there's some people that follow God, this God, Yahweh. But again and again and again, there's those that don't. And God treats it like committing adultery. It's that they're cheating on him with other gods. And it's not just that they're, they're like bowing down to a statue, but they're, they're actually like then doing all these evil practices that even gets to the terrible worst thing when actually even offering children as sacrifices to other gods. And there's one passage God says like that never even came into my mind. Like God's just saying this is out of control. So the people have gone down this path and God comes to them and he says, come back to me. And he, he calls out their, their evil and injustice and asks them to come back. And they just don't. And again and again, it eventually gets to a point where God brings judgment. He says, I can't let these things go on. I need to cleanse this land and this people. I need to bring justice and righteousness. So he comes. And the setting of this story is actually Jeremiah has been saying this is going to happen. And now it's about to happen. Jeremiah 32 says, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. He's the last king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. So this other nation is coming in to basically destroy Jerusalem, where, where the Israelites are. And it's, God's actually working that. God is bringing a judgment. And so imagine that. You're in this city, and it's under siege. So it means that there's like... All these armies, there's, there's free horses, there's just people all surrounding you, and you're trapped. It's pretty full-on, devastating setting. And it's even worse for Jeremiah, because Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Basically, Jeremiah is in jail. And we read next, it says, Zedekiah the king of Judah has imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. So Jeremiah has been saying, this is, God is at work here. God is coming and basically saying, don't rebel against um, Babylon. It's going to be worse if you do. And, and Zedekiah obviously doesn't want to hear it. He's not interested. And then he says, I'm just going to put Jeremiah in prison because he keeps bothering me. So Jeremiah is in a city that's surrounded by another nation who he knows is going to destroy, this, destroy Jerusalem. And they're going to be taken out. And he is also in prison. That's a pretty terrible, hopeless situation. And into that situation, God gives this crazy command. God speaks to him. It says this in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. 
Hanamel, son of Shulam, your uncle, is going to come to you. So this is his cousin. God's saying, your cousin's going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, which is where Jeremiah was from, because as nearest relative, it's your right and your duty to buy it. So God speaks to Jeremiah, this is what's going to happen. Then it happens. The word of the Lord came to me. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin, Hanamel, came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the um, territory of Benjamin, since it's your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. You might think, okay, well, cool. Like, what does that meant to mean? It's like, when you actually think about it, this is, this is crazy. Like, he's in siege. No one's thinking about buying land. People are thinking about food and water and how not to die. Jeremiah particularly is in prison, so he's probably worse off than everybody else. Nobody's thinking about how to do business deals. Nobody's going to, to do their trade and their study. People are just, how do we survive the army that's right on the door? And he's in jail, and his cousin comes in and says, hey, do you want to buy my field? And, and the field is outside of Jerusalem. The field is really where the enemy already is. It's like, this is a crazy thing to do. But he does it. Because it was clear that God said, Jeremiah said, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel. I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. So he bought a field, was in jail, it's a fair bit of money. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scale. So I actually did it, it's all legit. He signed the documents, Today it's like getting the contract, getting the settlement, they did all the things. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. He gave this to his mate Baruch, who's looking after the details. In the presence of my cousin, he's, there's all these people who are seeing it, there's witnesses who signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. So it's like a public thing. He's like publicly buying a field while they're under siege while he's in prison. Even more, it says he gave Baruch these instructions. Take this, these documents, both the sealed and unsealed of the deed of purchase and put them in a clay jar so they'll last a long time. So he gets these documents, basically makes like a time capsule so they're going to last a long time. They're not going to be lost. You think, why is he doing this? And then he speaks God's word. He says this, For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And you think, there is no evidence that that will happen. Everything says Jerusalem is about to be fully destroyed. Jeremiah is going to go into exile as well. No one's thinking about buying land right now. But he does it. And he does it as a prophetic act that says, actually, though there's no hope when you just look at things, actually, things are going to return to normal. Actually, we're going to come back. Actually, people are going to buy fields and land again. God will restore this place. And it's this powerful prophetic action that just looks ridiculous, but is, is, is done in hope that actually God's future will come about, even though there's no evidence of it. And he was probably ridiculed for it. One author said this, he probably endured the ridicule of the crowded courtyard. He could expect to be the butt of scornful pity for days to come. Yet he had created a public, written, verified, enduring prophetic signpost pointing to a future beyond the immediate catastrophe. Like, that is hope. It's to act like things are going to get better, like what God has promised will happen, to actually, literally, in this sense, buy into that, invest into that future, 
even though there's no evidence at all, even though everything would say that's impossible, even though like, people will even laugh at him for that, that's actually a picture of hope. And it's hard to kind of imagine this, like, but I was trying to think, what would a thought experiment look like for us today? If we tried to imagine, what would this be like? It could be like, like the worst thing possible happens here. Like, say we're actually literally being invaded by a foreign country. Like, we're at war, full-on war. Uh, another country is, like, right outside. The ships are along the coast. Troops are already getting onto the mainland. We, we don't have enough to fight. We know it's pretty hopeless. It's a, it's a full-on war zone. Like, there's bombs going off. Like, it's crazy. It's chaos. Like, it, it, it's hard to even imagine what that would be like. And it's even worse for you because you're in prison because you're seen as a traitor to the country, because you said that this was going to happen. And you kind of even said, maybe you just need to go with it. Maybe we should not fight. Maybe we should give in and surrender, because we've got no hope. And the, the, the government sort of sees you as a threat and puts you in prison. So everyone's freaking out around you. People are just in survival mode. What's going to happen? There's this country right on our doorstep. You're in prison. The people are probably not even really thinking about you at all. You're just, just thinking about how to get food, how to survive. And your cousin rocks up to the prison. And he comes in and says, hey, uh, do you want to buy my farm out west? Do you want to do it? I'll give you a deal. They think, nobody's buying farms. <laughs> nobody's buying houses. Nobody's investing in the future. People are thinking about the now and just how do we get through this day? How do we get through this week? They're not thinking about, how, like, let's go through the settlement and the process and buy a farm. Like, that's crazy. But you do it, and you do it as a prophetic sign that you believe that actually things will shift, and actually life will go back to normal. Actually, people will buy farms and houses and go to school and go to uni again, even though there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. You act like you believe that what God has said will happen. Again, that's not a perfect parallel, but trying to sort of picture what that would be like, just the craziness of this action that Jeremiah does. And you might sort of think, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a cool story. Like, that's, that's really great for Jeremiah. But, like, like, what about us? Like, what does it look like for 2019? Because we sort of think, well, actually, when we look at things, there's probably not a lot of hope. Well, more and more people are not, not really operating or acting or thinking in hope about the future. And we kind of read things in the news or, or, or more and more the way sort of people talk or act or think. It's actually like, a sense of freaking out and wondering what's going to happen, the sense of things that might be getting worse, not better, and, and not really investing in a future, but sort of thinking, well, how do we just make this work? And, and maybe that's, that's kind of even globally, maybe that's even in your own life. It seems like there's more and more distrust or not hope in, say, government or even in church, in, in institutions. There's sort of a sense of what, what's going to happen. And it's easy to sort of sink back into a sense of just cynicism or skepticism that there's no hope. So we just need to hang back and we'll just sort of wait and see if things get better. We'll sort of just tap out. And there's an ease to that. There's a sense of, well, actually, we don't have to risk anything. We don't have to invest. We don't have to believe. We can actually just pull back and maybe wish that things will get better. Eugene Peterson says this, though, what we call hoping is often only wishing. We want things 
that we think are impossible, but we have better sense than to spend any money or commit our lives to them. So we sort of want things to get better, and that's how we often use the word hope. Like we hope this will happen,、uh, but we're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to invest unless we can sort of be pretty sure it's going to happen. But he says biblical hope, though, is an act, like buying a field in Anathoth. Hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work He has begun, even when the appearances, especially when the appearances oppose it. Actually, the situations that look the worst, like there's no hope in the Bible, that's when hope is really needed, and that's when the call is to act in hope that what God has said will happen, even when there's no evidence that it will. But at the same time, that's really hard, and it's even hard for Jeremiah, because we see if you keep going through the passage in chapter 32, he's kind of confused. <laughs> like Jeremiah has been preaching judgment; he's been saying God has been telling him that this destruction is going to come, and now it's happening. And then he has to do this act, and and he seems kind of confused. And again, we might even be like that in situations where we sort of don't know how to have hope, and we go to prayer. And Jeremiah starts to pray, and I won't go through it all, but he starts to pray and just and just praise God.、He、says, "Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you." And he starts to just tell God about what he's done, and just remind himself that God rescued them from Egypt, and God planted them in the land, and God is just and good, and God has this covenant with them. And he just goes through all of all of these things, and then the fact that they've forsaken him and they've not followed him, and then now there's this 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 setting of judgment. At the end of the prayer, he says, "The seed, how the seed ramps." He's saying, "Look at look at what's happening. The seed ramps are built up to take the city." Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. So Jeremiah is saying, God, what you said was going to happen. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be destruction. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. It's like Jeremiah did it. <laughs> like God told him to do it. Jeremiah did it, but he's kind of. He doesn't say it explicitly, but he's kind of saying to God, like, "Why did you want me to do that? Like, that makes no sense. Like, why would I buy a field and 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 have to spend my money on that when it's just like there's just this destruction coming?" And God speaks into this situation. God speaks powerfully to Jeremiah, and I just want to read just a, a few verses, a few slides of of some promises that God speaks into this situation that seems hopeless. I'm just going to read through. From verse twenty-six, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So God answers his prayer, and He says, "I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says: I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down, along with the houses where the people aroused my anger." By burning incense on roofs to Baal and pouring out drink offerings to other gods, so God is saying that there is a judgment that's coming, that there's there's injustice, there's evil. He will do what he has said, but then he shifts, and he says this: "You, Jeremiah, are saying about the city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says: I will surely gather them." From all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety, 
They will be my people and I will be their God. He says, I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me and all then will go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. It says, fields will be bought for silver, deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, in the towns of the hill country, in the western foothills of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. God, God speaks powerfully. And just, just imagine this. Like, like, this, is, this is, seems crazy in a sense that God, like God is bringing this judgment. But you even see his love in the midst of that. He loves these people. And they've brought him to a place where he needs to bring justice. He needs to almost like break their hearts so they realize what they're doing and the direction they're going. But his heart is to redeem them, is to rescue them. Though they, though they just like dis- dishonor him and disown him again and again and again, his heart is, I want to make an everlasting covenant with them. I want to bring them back. I want to restore their fortunes. I want to bless them. I want to plant them here forever. That's actually his heart. And Jeremiah is almost like so used to preaching judgment that God says, to, like, Jeremiah, you're the one who's talking about judgment. Now I'm talking about hope. Like God just flips and, and changes. And I actually see that this is not Jeremiah like, getting psyched up with some hope about the future. This is God. This is Yahweh. He's actually the one that tells Jeremiah to do this action. It's not Jeremiah's idea. He's confused by it. It's Yahweh's idea, the God of Israel. He says, act in hope, Jeremiah, by the field. And then Yahweh is the one who gives the hope-filled promises. He's the one who says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to rescue them. They're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their God. God, God is the one who just declares over and over these promises. It's, it's his word. It's not from Jeremiah. It's from Yahweh. And we see, because we know history, and if you read more of the story, that actually Yahweh, this God, always fulfills his hope-filled promises. He made a promise. We see that, that yes, people are going to be taken out of Jerusalem, but he will bring them back, and it happened. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, it happens in Ezra. He, he, he makes a king who lets the Jews come back to Israel. And we see that the promises that are present here actually go beyond just coming back to the land, but he talks about a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. He talks about a people who will have a heart of devotion to God. And we see that actually God fulfills that in Jesus that actually he comes to take the judgment on himself. He comes to bear the ways that we've dishonored him and disowned him so that we can be restored to him and planted in this close relationship with him. And so, so the promises that he makes to Jeremiah are actually fulfilled. He's the God of hope who fulfills his promises. And we're actually still in this story, and he's actually made promises that he even makes to Jeremiah that have not yet been fulfilled that point to a future when God will fully renew the earth and heaven and earth will come together, Jesus will come back, there will be justice and goodness over the whole world and actually that's where everything is heading, that he's promised it and every time he's fulfilled it and he's actually the God of hope. It's actually him that initiates the hope. It's actually him that calls us to live into this new future. It's not us. Actually, we can be people filled with hope, especially in hopeless situations, because our God is the God of hope. 
It's not that we get psyched up with hope. It's that actually God acts in hope. God knows the future. God's not freaking out. He will do what he has said, like he always does. And we can actually act on that. We can believe in that. We can trust in that. And actually let everything go to that. We don't have to look at what's going on around. We can look at what he says and act according to that. Peterson again puts it this way. He says, every situation we find ourselves must be included in the kingdom we are convinced God is bringing into being. It's like we picture the future that God has said will happen, and now we choose to act in accordance with that. We bring everything into that. Hope is buying into what we believe. It's actually not just saying, yeah, we believe that, but it's actually acting like it will happen. It's directing everything towards that. We don't turn away in despair. We don't throw our hands up in disgust. We don't write this person off as incorrigible. It means like they, there's no hope for them to change. Like we just give up on somebody. We don't withdraw from a complex world that is too much for us. We actually stay filled with hope even when everything looks hopeless because we know that God will do what he has said. G.K. Chesterton says it like this, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. It says like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. Actually saying hope doesn't make sense. <laughs> like a situation does not make sense for Jeremiah to buy a field at all. It's, it's ridiculous. But, uh, about, but apart from the fact that God said to do it, and God said this is going to happen, and he's actually operating in accordance with God's promise. And actually, it's, it's the same. that we, we, don't, we sort of think, well, actually, no, to buy into something when it doesn't look like there's any hope, that doesn't seem practical. That doesn't seem smart. That doesn't seem realistic. Like, we don't want to be just optimists. We want to be, re- we want to be real about real life. And he's actually saying, well, the most real thing is God, and what God has said, and the most practical thing is to live in accordance with what God has said and to act that way, not based on what we see, but based on this God of hope that we trust and look to him. And kind of the point that we're trying to get across tonight is, is that hope is most needed in situations that seem hopeless. And it's not that we have to work something up. It's that we actually have to recognize that God is God. He's the God of hope. We actually look to him and let him shift us. And sometimes that's what we need. We need somebody else who has hope to shift us. We, we, we may not be able to just get it ourselves. We need to almost receive it or be changed from another person. I had an experience like this a few years ago. Um, it wasn't long after Tam and I got married, and I just went through a really hard time. And it wasn't because of Tam. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't her fault. Um, but... It's kind of this thing where you get married and then all your insecurities come out and all your issues come out and you kind of have to deal with life a bit more. And I just found myself really battling a lot of negative emotions and thoughts and just difficulties and uh, I'd be quite anxious. Um, I would just start to think very negatively and sort of spiral down. And I was working as a teacher and it would be every day it was just a battle and, and sometimes I'd just get in these like low moods that would last a while. And it just was a situation that kind of there wasn't much hope. Like I was trying to get out of it and trying to fix it, trying to figure ways, but, but not really confident or feeling good about the future at all, and sometimes getting pretty low and pretty dark. And it got to a situation where it got so bad um, that we ended up, I ended up going to see a counsellor. And I can still remember the first time I walked into his office, and 
sort of met him, I hadn't met him before, and, and went and sat down in the, in the office and just sort of shared about where I was at, and he just sort of listened, and that was really good. And I, but I remember at the end, there was something about him that he, he shook my hand, and there was a commitment to me and a belief, and the way that he looked at me with his eyes had hope. He, it was just a sense of committing and actually believing that there's a way out, that things will get better, that you can, you can shift out of this, and that there was hope in his eyes. And just that <laughs> led to such a big shift for me to actually be like, oh, there's hope. Like, things can shift. Things can get better. There's actually a future beyond this. And actually then starts to change the way that you act and the way that you live and the way that you invest. And there was still lots of work to do and there was still a long journey. But that there was a pivotal moment and, and it was just particularly looking into his eyes and he had hope which shifted me. And we have a God who is described in Romans as the God of hope. And maybe tonight there may be even some who are just in a situation where you just sort of feel hopeless. And maybe you've even tried to like work it up. You're like, okay, I want to be filled with hope. And maybe instead the need is actually to look at him and recognize that he looks at you with hope and actually see his eyes in a sense. See, God, God's not freaking out. Like when God looks at the world, he's not freaking out. When he looks at our lives and, and sees the issues that we're facing, he's not freaking out. He's, he's eternal. He knows what he's doing. He, has, he, he, he is working towards his future and he has hope for us. He actually has dreams and imagination and plans and desires for your life that's way bigger than what you think. That he wants to use you for amazing things that, that we would never even think for in the future. He, he's the God of hope who wants to just go beyond our dreams and imaginations. And maybe there's a need to actually look to him and just receive that from him. Not try and work it up. But it's actually say, actually, yeah, God, God is working towards a future. He's the God of hope. And let that shift and fill us and shape us. It's him, and therefore we can have hope. And with that, this is sort of saying that to, the, the point so much is not so much the feeling of hope, but to act in accordance with that, to actually do something with that. And what we're going to do just to finish is, is just sort of think about this question. How might this God of hope be asking you in hope to buy into what you believe. Like he asked Jeremiah to literally buy a field as a prophetic act. Maybe tonight, and, and maybe not, but maybe God might even be saying something to you to do, something to us to do, to actually buy in, actually say, okay, God, I'm in, I believe you. Even though there's no evidence of that when what I look, when I, when I see, but I believe that you're faithful and what you've promised, what you've said in your word, what you've said to me will come to pass. I trust you and I'm going to buy into that. So maybe that's even just like an inner decision. It might be like a heart posture. It might be a mindset. Okay, I, I'm, I'm in. I'm in with God. I'm going to be in with hope. Or maybe it's a sense of commitment to something. Maybe it's a decision. Maybe it's even literally buying in and, and doing something in a situation. Maybe it's even a prophetic act that will actually demonstrate to other people that we are people of hope, that we believe God. We're not going to freak out. We're not just going to give up. We're not just going to go down the path of cynicism and skepticism. We believe in a better future, and we act according to that. So I actually just might give just like a minute, just maybe a couple of minutes. I'm just going to pray, and just a minute or two, just to sort of open to God, and, and maybe just to just recognize who he is, 
and just listen. And may, maybe there's something that might come up that, that actually this is what it would look like to buy in. This is what it would look like to act in hope. So let's pray and then we'll just sort of just wait on, wait on him just for a couple of minutes. So Father, God, you, you are faithful and good. And we sung about it before that you've been faithful again and again and again. Yet it's so easy just to, to forget. It's so easy to freak out. Um, God, we often are not people filled with hope, but you are. You are the God of hope, and you call us to act in accordance with your word and your promises and the glorious future that you're heading everything towards, of your kingdom, of heaven, of goodness, of rightness. God, that there is a strong, sure hope. And we just ask, yeah, Holy Spirit, would you speak tonight? Um, yeah, is, is there specific things, God, you would even have us do to buy in, to be people of hope, to act in accordance with your word, um, to, to, to believe and operate in hope in the midst of hopelessness? So yeah, Father, would you just speak, just, just wait on you just for, just for a minute. We're going to take communion now, and and even as we do this, we are, um, yeah, a part of this story that that God promised a new covenant, and and He's made a way through His blood, through His death and resurrection. I was just thinking about before, Jesus is the ultimate one who buys into the better future, that that He fully offers His whole life in belief that actually he can reconcile us to God, that he can rescue us from sin and death, he can bring healing and justice and goodness to the world, and he buys in completely and offers his, himself on the cross. And because of that, there we have this hope. And it's interesting to think that actually we, we kind of tend to think when we take communion, it's like, okay, it's just about remembering and it's just bread and it's just wine and that sort of stuff. But, but we're actually going to do an act like, we're not just remembering in our mind, we actually do this. We actually take the bread and eat it, a physical act. And actually in the act, um, Paul says in Romans that we are at the end there proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. That Jesus said to, to take his body, which is given for us in remembrance, to take his blood and drink that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And to do this in remembrance of him. And we're actually, as we do this, we are declaring as an act that, that Jesus died and rose again. That he has shaped and changed history forever. That there is hope that he will come again. And that we've been forgiven. We are his people now. We get to live with him.
and, and that, that we, we have been united with his death, and we'll be united with his resurrection, we have new life. And actually, it's in that act we proclaim it. So as we take communion um, tonight, I just encourage you to, in faith, eat and drink and remember and enter into this story and particularly look to that future, that the hope that he returns and sets everything right, that's where everything's heading. So let's pray and, and then we'll come. And if you believe in Jesus and we come and we take this, this biscuit and just dip it in the juice representing his blood, we can eat it and we, we actually act in hope. So Father, thank you for who you are, that you would offer yourself, Jesus, to rescue us and redeem us, people who forsake you again and again, you have made a way to be with you forever. And we just thank you for your body and, and your blood, for your forgiveness, and just, just renew our love for you, God, renew our faith in this time, and just give us even faith to take and eat as we proclaim your death by doing this thing you said to do the night that you were betrayed. So we just ask you continue just to meet with us and lead us now. Just pray this in your name. Amen.